G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit rates device. Really grateful for you uh, taking the time to download and listen to this podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. We'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a review. I did promise I'd read out the reviews last time, but uh, it has been next time now, because um, I, I don't have another screen that I can do that. But anyway, um, it'd be great if you could uh, leave us a review. Five-star review would be great. Other reviews, give to other, other podcasts, um, but really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes of your time to do that. So today Today, joining Brian and myself in, in Brian's office, which is uh, which is unusual, um, uh, is is uh, Sarah Stewart. So, Sarah, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Um, and uh, we were going to talk about um, IBD and lymphoma in cats. So, I suppose my my, my, my maybe my first question would be, um, uh, as as you quite rightly pointed out, people consider sometimes these are the same disease, but they're but they're they're not. So, maybe we should say what is the difference. Um, great place to start. So uh, this disease is one that's sort of near and dear to my heart um, as a boarded internist who also works in oncology. It's one of those diseases that really presents kind of equally on both sides of the field. Um, and I'm an unabashed crazy cat lady. So uh, of course it has personal uh, connections as well. Um, one thing that I've encountered a, a lot in cases that have been referred into us sometimes for medical workups um, is that clients uh, maybe sort of have gotten uh, the suggestion that the treatment's going to be very similar for IBD versus small cell lymphoma, so maybe let's not bother proceeding with uh, getting uh, definitive diagnosis, which would require biopsies. Let's just empirically treat um, with steroids or with steroids and chlorambucil, because we're going to treat them both about the same way. Um, so one of the things that I'm trying to get out there, hopefully with this podcast and do, is help encourage people to hopefully not take that route, um, avoid the empiric trial, and really help to educate our clients about the importance of getting those biopsies. Um, so we do know there probably is some degree of uh, sort of continuity between the inflammatory disease complex and the development of small cell lymphoma. So we've got a large body of evidence in human medicine and a growing body in dogs, mouse models, and cats that any sort of chronic inflammatory state will increase the risk of progression to a neoplastic transformation. There's a lot of work going on right now looking at the effects of the microbiome, and we are actually finding that both cats with inflammatory bowel disease, and even more so with small cell lymphoma, have some significant changes in the populations of bacteria, um, certain things like fusobacterium and enterobacter, um, are believed to potentially, when they're there in higher numbers, help to increase the progression of an inflammatory state into a neoplastic process. So um, that can get complicated sometimes when we're interpreting biopsies for cats with IBD, because we might actually find evidence of inflammatory bowel disease and small cell lymphoma in the same cat. Um, the key, though, is we actually do treat these two conditions quite differently. And while, yes, we might treat a severe inflammatory bowel disease with steroids and chlorambucil, and that might be the starting therapy we do for small cell lymphoma, the problem becomes what happens when the cat that we're just taking our best guess in, we give those drugs to, doesn't respond, or responds for two months and then stops responding. Um, in that situation, we really have no direction to know where to go. If we have IBD, do we need more powerful immunosuppressive drugs? Um, do we need to throw in things like cyclosporin? Um, but if we have have lymphoma, do we need other chemotherapy drugs? So things like um, going on to lomustine, another more powerful oral alkylating agent, or sometimes even, you know, full sort of injectable chemotherapy. And certainly, while we're 
you know, reluctantly comfortable to prescribe clarambucil um, without a definitive diagnosis because that is a drug that's used to treat immune-mediated inflammatory diseases and neoplasia. It's, of all of our chemotherapeutics, it's the one with the sort of gentlest side effect profile, does, you know, gives the sort of least risk. So um, we certainly would not be comfortable prescribing things like lomustine or intravenous chemotherapy without a definitive diagnosis. So um, those owners that elect the sort of route of treating without a diagnosis um, we can often end up kind of in between a rock and a hard place if those first treatments we gave didn't work. Um, there's also the final concern. There are a fair number of these cats that just go on empiric steroid trials um, when they present with nonspecific GI signs and um, when a diet hasn't worked. Uh, we do know certainly on the human side and the canine side that pretreatment of a lymphoma with sole agent steroids um, is associated with a worse outcome um, because we've sort of been exposing those cancer cells to just one drug for some time. Uh, it lets the cancer cells uh, sort of devise and evolve mechanisms to excrete kind of all the drugs we give them. And then when we introduce chemotherapy at a later date, it's a bit less effective. Um, so there is sort of recent suggestion in the feline literature that we are seeing the same thing with um, cats with, you know, sort of treated presumptively for IBD versus lymphoma with sole agent steroids that we then try to get on chemotherapy. So we definitely want to try to move away from that if we can. So some of, some of the confusions are that uh, that they present a similar age demographic in, in cats and similar presenting signs? Absolutely. So unfortunately, um, clinically and on most of our diagnostic tests, other than um, getting histologic biopsy, these cases will look almost identical. So um, there's diff you know, sort of different ends of the spectrum. So certainly if we have a two-year-old cat presenting with um, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, our suspicion for inflammatory bowel disease or things like food-responsive enteropathy um, are going to be much higher compared to, say, a 17-year-old cat that had no prior history of any GI issues that suddenly breaks with chronic vomiting and unexplained weight loss. But there's a huge amount of overlap between those case groups. Um, so whenever we have a cat that is either presenting with new GI signs, so vomiting, diarrhea, inappetence, or unexplained weight loss, um, we really want to be keeping things like these malabsorptive intestinal diseases in our mind. Um, obviously, we're going to begin by ruling out the, the basics, making sure we don't have um, hyperthyroidism, we don't have other systemic illness, liver disease, renal disease, um, you know, we don't have uh, unusual things like exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, um, and then obviously diabetes, but often we get to the point where we've had a cat come in, you've done your you know, very basic initial workup, CBC chem, UA, T4, haven't revealed anything, and then we're sort of left with, okay, well, we've ruled out the common things, what are we left with? And it's really knowing that, all right, our next step in that diagnosis is moving forward to look for IBD versus lymphoma. So typically the next step we would be advising in those cases is doing an abdominal ultrasound. Um, there are certain changes we'll see on the ultrasound that um, are common in both inflammatory bowel disease and small cell lymphoma. So we can see um, thickening of the uh, muscularis layer, also of the mucosa layer, mesenteric lymphadenopathy. Um, and unfortunately, there has been a, a lot of studies looking at ultrasonographic findings and saying, well, is one of these significantly more likely to be lymphoma versus IBD? None of those studies have panned out to be definitive. So we do say that if there's much significant muscularis thickening, it's probably more likely lymphoma, but we can't say that with any certainty. And unfortunately, we can have cats with both small cell lymphoma and inflammatory bowel disease that have a completely normal ultrasound. So the only place we find the abnormality is on that tissue. So if an ultrasound is not necessarily definitive, is there is there much point in doing that? That's a great question as well. So um, 
oftentimes when we're working these cats up, especially if we're going to be talking about going for either endoscopy or surgery, we need to sort of have a full assessment to make sure there's nothing else lurking that could be causing similar mimicking clinical signs. So um, we have had chronic intussusceptions, unexpected portosystemic shunts, um, and sort of other unexpected neoplastic processes popping up on those ultrasounds unexpectedly. So while we're not expecting the ultrasound to give us the diagnosis of IBD versus small cell lymphoma, it helps us make sure we don't have any of those less common unexpected things that would pop up, um, and to make sure that we're actually making the right call going forward on our next diagnostics. If there's a mid-jejunal mass effect that we can see on our ultrasound, endoscopy is not going to help us there. We're not going to be able to access the jejunum with the scope, and probably we want surgical biopsies. Similarly, there's some debate if we've got significant evidence of pathology in the pancreas and the liver, um, we might recommend that patient to go for surgical biopsies over endoscopic. So the ultrasound helps us in that decision-making process. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that, and that's probably a worthwhile uh, way to go, go forward. Do you do any other biochemical tests like before? Do you look at cobalamin at, at that point in time? Or Yeah, so that's another uh, great test to bring up. Um, so I think for most internists, the uh, um, sort of B12 and folate are probably some of our favorite tests because they can be really useful. Um, so if we have a low cobalamin, um, that means that we know that we've got malabsorptive disease going on in the ileum for the most part. There's a few other things that will cause low cobalamin. So if we've got exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, we're not having secretion of intrinsic factor from the pancreas, we're going to have a very low B12. However, in cats, the vast majority of cats that have EPI actually have it due to underlying inflammatory bowel disease or small cell lymphoma. So even if you make that diagnosis of EPI by running a TLI, um, we then need to still explore the GI tract. So a bit of a different picture from the common diagnosis of TLI in dogs. If folate is low, we know we have a problem in the duodenum. And obviously, if they're both low, that helps us confirm diffuse intestinal disease. So these can be really useful tests, I think, sometimes for our uh, colleagues in general practice. When you have those clients who come in for your um, sort of geriatric cat wellness exam, and we note, oh, you know, Fluffy has lost 400 grams since our last visit. That's pretty concerning. We run our initial blood work. Doesn't turn up anything. We're not hyperthyroid. Um, that client is a bit reluctant to maybe pursue referral or the extra cost of doing an ultrasound. Um, you can run a B12 folate in those cases and say, okay, well, if those are low, we've definitely got evidence there's something going on in the GI tract, and that can help be the push that some of those clients need to pursue those other diagnostics. Um, we can still have significant IBD and small cell lymphoma if those tests are normal. So abnormal, so a normal result doesn't rule out disease. Um, but if they are abnormal, it gives us another really useful tool to help convince that owner to say, yep, there's a problem. And similarly, if we have a low cobalamin, we know that even when we're treating the underlying disease, if we haven't fixed the cobalamin, those patients often won't have a complete clinical response. So it's really important if we are finding low cobalamin to treat it, and we're not going to know to treat it if we're not looking. Um, I will also encourage everyone out there, if you've got one of these sort of vague GI sign cats, vague weight loss cats, really think about the potential diagnostic utility that B12 can give you before we, say, give an empiric shot of vitamin B12. So often cobalamin um, will make cats' GI signs transiently improve, often because we're supplementing a, a subtherapeutic reduction. Uh, but if we've given a shot of B12, we can't actually reliably check a cobalamin level for probably upwards of about three months. So again, we lose the ability to get that uh, extra piece of diagnostic information. So if you're out there, definitely we want to be checking B12, giving B12 if it's low, um, but try to minimize the sort of empiric use of B12 without getting that level checked beforehand, if at all possible. 
And so when you were speaking about the, the you know, we might want to have endoscopy to uh, to get our biopsies, or we might have to go surgically, depending on maybe the ultrasound help guide us where we want to go. Um, has there ever been shown or evidence to suggest if you have that information that biopsies surgically obtained are more diagnostic than than, than endoscopically obtained? Um, that is a great question. It's one of the great uh, debates and controversies in um, sort of feline internal medicine and gastroenterology. Um, so it's probably one of those subjects that if you polled 100 different people, you might get um, 100 slightly different answers. But certainly the recent body of evidence that kind of has come out um, is really supporting that if, if we're doing good quality endoscopic biopsies, meaning that we're getting um, sort of adequate tissue, it's really important when you're taking intestinal biopsies. Um, the intestine is a parallel tube, um, and the biopsy forceps is coming out in parallel with the scope running down it. So you need to have good endoscopic technique to be able to turn the scope and the biopsy forceps perpendicular so that we can get as much of a sort of direct bite into the intestinal wall as possible. Um, if we get just superficial villus tips, definitely we're not going to get a diagnostic result. So in the hands of a good endoscopist, um, you should definitely be able to get good quality samples to be diagnostic. Um, the other thing, there's been a few recent studies showing that we can have increased diagnostic utility when we collect samples from the ileum. So again, like we talked about with B12 levels, if our cobalamin is low, we know there's problem in the ileum, we probably want to try to sample that area. So when we're recommending an endoscopy in these cases, um, we are recommending going in and doing both an upper and a lower GI. Um, not so much to get the colonic biopsies, but more to be able to access the ileum and get tissue that way. Um, in cats, uh, if you've got a scope that is sort of 9.8 millimeter external diameter or under um, with good technique, you should be able to get into hopefully at least half of um, those cats um, directly driving into the ileum. The others, um, you in probably 90% of cases, you can pass endoscopic forceps blind into the ileum and get blind biopsies that way. There's always going to be a few cats, though, that you know defy even the best gastroenterologist at getting those ileal biopsies, but we do always want to try. Um, so while we know absolutely surgical biopsies give us the most information possible because we get all four layers um, of the intestine instead of just sampling the mucosa and submucosa, um, there are some downsides. So it's going to be an increased cost. Um, and often for these clients, it's sort of the cost of the workup that's sort of impeding their uh, sort of willingness to move forward. Uh, it's going to be more invasive. We have a bit more of a risk of um, sort of intestinal dehiscence and um, sort of significant, potentially life-threatening complications. Um, and there are some things that endoscopy can tell us that surgical biopsies can't. We can actually visualize the entire surface of the mucosa and the areas the scope can access. So we get a good look at certainly all of the duodenum, hopefully the beginning part of the jejunum. If you've got a scope that's 100 centimeters or there's definitely some out there that we use that are 160 centimeters. So in those, we can get into the early jejunum um, and then the ileum. So we can take multiple biopsies from all of those areas. If we go in surgically, we're just going to get a single piece of tissue usually. Um, it is important though, certainly if you are going in surgically, we want to sample from every segment of the intestine. So you get something from the stomach, the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. We know that most small cell lymphoma arises first in the jejunum and then sort of spreads outwards. But again, it is a relatively diffuse disease process. So the hope is if it's in one of those areas, and if we know on our um, sort of B12 folate levels that one or both of those are abnormal, we've got a pretty, we're pretty confident that we're going to be able to, to get that sample. Um, surgical biopsies also are something that if we're trying to rule out some of the 
uh, sort of obscure differentials for um, cats that are presenting with, with these clinical signs. So there's some um, neutrophilic enteritis, some fibrosclerosing conditions. Um, in, we may have to go to surgical biopsies to ultimately get those answers, but those are pretty rare situations. So often we'll kind of present to clients um, the pros and cons of endoscopic versus surgical biopsies um, and say that given that endoscopic biopsies are less invasive, less costly. We get to look at the mucosa. We'd recommend starting with that, but knowing there's a small chance that in a few cases we might have to go back in and get surgical biopsies if we felt like the endoscopic biopsies didn't answer the whole question for us. And then what are you looking So when you get the biopsy results? So what are you actually uh, looking at? So how do you uh, interpret those? Um, so this is also something that our colleagues on the pathology side of things spend a, a lot of time agonizing over. So there's a huge degree of subjectivity in interpretation of intestinal biopsies. So there's a lot of studies looking at, um, you know, giving three different pathologists the same sets of tissues and seeing how many of them call them IBD versus lymphoma versus sort of inconclusive. And there's a huge spread. So WASAVA, the World's Small Animal Veterinary Association, has put out some guidelines to sort of help pathologists standardize reports and make sure we're covering all all of those different bases. Um, we're mostly looking, both of the situations we're going to be seeing infiltrates of lymphocytic cells. Um, when we're looking to see if that's a neoplastic process or not, we're really trying to see are those cells effacing crypts and villi? Um, are they forming clusters and sort of whorls? Are we having a lot of epitheliotropism? Those are the kinds of things that we would see more likely in a small cell lymphoma case. But what we're learning more and more as we're kind of looking at these biopsies is that often the naked eye uh, under a microscope is not enough to adequately distinguish these two conditions. So happily, we've got some new kind of molecular tests that can really help aid that. So we do immunohistochemistry chemistry where we're staining to look for um, CD3, CD20, CD79A to try to see if we have a T or B cell population. Um, in these situations, what that's helping us more to do is identify where the clusters of um, lymphocytes are congregating. So the vast, vast majority of um, sort of feline GI lymphoma is T cell anyway. So we're trying to see if there's an infiltrate of lymphoma or an infiltrate of lymphoid cells there are they forming patterns on immunohistochemistry that are more suggestive of a neoplastic process? Um, and then often a next step we'll do in conjunction or um, sort of instead of immunohistochemistry is something called PAR, PCR for antigen receptor rearrangement. Um, so this is a test where we um, sort of put in DNA primers to isolate the uh, sort of variable chain uh, region of the T-cell receptor. Um, we can also do it on B-cell, but again, that's not as commonly done in um, sort of the cat diagnostic workup situation for diffuse low-grade intestinal diseases, because those are almost always T-cell. Um, and then what we do is sort of look at those DNA primers and see all the products that we're getting on that PCR. Are they all identical um, and suggesting that we have a monomorphic clonal population, or do we have a polyclonal process going on? There's all sorts of different products there that we'd see more with an inflammatory bowel disease process. So in an ideal world, um, you know, certainly the veterinary pathology articles that have come out recently looking at this disease would recommend that you know, we'd probably be doing all three of these things. When we've gone back and looked at cases retrospectively that were diagnosed with IBD um, just based on H&E before we had um, sort of immunohistochemistry and PAR available, um, about up to 50% of those cases when we went back and did IHC and PAR on them were found to actually be small cell lymphoma. So um, usually when we're having these chats with owners, we'll say, you know, let's wait for our biopsies to come back. If the pathologists are confident calling that small cell lymphoma, because certainly in some cases it's quite obvious, great, we're good to go, we go down the treatment route. If they come back and they're saying, you know, 
can't really tell, could be inflammatory bowel disease, but we're not sure, or even in cases where they feel like probably inflammatory bowel disease, but there's a little bit of epitheliotropism there, that's the situation where I'm going to call the pathologist, get back on the phone and say, hey, let's add on the IHC and let's add on the PAR. Um, with clients, uh, often the, the sort of struggle for these financially is, again, the costs of all the diagnostics. The silver lining with these diseases is that with both IBD and small cell lymphoma, usually the big cost outlay is in the diagnosis. Once we've gotten to the point of treatment, usually that's a lot less costly. So we really want to make sure that we've done our homework and gotten the correct diagnosis. So often when we're estimating costs for these owners at the start of workup, I will actually bundle in the cost of the PAR and the IHC as the estimate on the high end and say, hey, there's a good chance we'll have to do these tests. If we don't, great, but we want them to know that that's potentially coming down the pipeline rather than spending you know X number of pounds on an endoscopy or surgery, then getting a phone call a week later to say, oh, now we have to do another expensive test. It's all sort of in setting the client up with those expectations. If it does help that much using immunohistochemistry or, or part like is it worthwhile just to run it on on all of them or what I, I know I'm not asking you to speak on the pathologist's behalf but it seems that if it's going to uh, improve our specificity then it would be wise to use it yeah right? and certainly that's sort of that's what we recommend so with that saying you know if we diagnose small cell lymphoma we're happy with that. Um, the concern is missing a small cell lymphoma that we're calling IBD so for me any of those ones that come back and it's called as IBD in a patient that makes sort of sense from a clinical picture, we recommend adding those on. And certainly based on the, the latest veterinary pathology articles that have come out looking at PAR um, and looking at sort of using that in combination with IHC, that is the recommendation. So they're all sort of adjuncts that help the understanding of the total picture. Absolutely, because it'd be very difficult just to see. I imagine just looking at it that, yeah, that, that's it. If we have these tools available Absolutely. to us. To, we have them, we should use them. Um, and I think certainly just from a general oncologic perspective, um, it has surprised me how much just in general immunohistochemistry and PAR end up sometimes changing our diagnoses. So we're really um, sort of moving to a point with a lot of our cancers of telling owners, you know, when we get that preliminary sample back, if the pathologist has recommended those further tests, we say, right, we have a preliminary diagnosis. This is not for sure yet. We're going to hold off on treatment if we can hold off on decisions until we get those tests back because sometimes you get a big surprise when they come back so no pathology in general sort of takes maybe uh, four or five days to to come come back depending on, on what's required does uh, immunohistochemistry and par take longer or um great question it depends on the the labs that you're using but certainly i think most commercial diagnostic labs now um, are very in tune to the clinical needs uh, of uh, clinicians and their patients and have quick turnaround so certainly here at the rvc um, if we request immunohistochemical staining we'll have those back the following day um, usually it's something that has to be set up overnight so if you give the lab a call by say three o'clock um, the technicians can get that set up they stay in overnight and then the pathologist can look the next morning um, par often just because of kind of cost and ease tests are usually run as a batch so it's going to depend on your individual lab how often they're running that um, the lab we use runs samples twice a week so again if we've submitted a sample on a monday we should get a result back by say tuesday afternoon um, it is important as well just as with any diagnostic lab you know do your homework make sure your lab has good quality control um, par is a pcr based test so um, there's always potential for false positives and false negatives um, we can see false positives with par due to something called pseudoclonality if you don't have enough dna material um, or if that DNA material is quite degraded. Um, if it was small pieces that were informal in, sometimes the PCR can amplify tiny segments. Usually a good lab can tell looking at the pattern that, oh, that looks potentially like pseudoclonality. It's usually also repeated in triplicate. So we want to see that the result that we're getting is consistent across all three of those samples. Um, and then unfortunately, just as with any test, there uh, is still potential for false negatives with PAR, um, simply because if we've 
happen to have a unique mutation that our primer is not able to pick up, we might miss that. So it's really one of those diseases that you know we're assessing the whole clinical picture, all of those different pieces to um, sort of make our final diagnosis. And I suppose the delay of getting a, well, not the delay, but the, the time it takes to get a result is not necessarily going to compromise anything to do with the patient. And imagine for those that you've taken a surgical route, you're not going to give them any drugs anyway until they've recovered from that so is there is there a time period that you have before you would start any therapy before we talk about the different therapies that you might try that's a great question as well and it's something that um comes up uh, especially when we're having that debate sometimes of do we get endoscopic biopsies or do we get surgical biopsies so anytime we're doing an enterotomy um usually we're not comfortable starting chemotherapy immunosuppressive steroids until two weeks um sort of post procedure due to the risk of dehiscence and i worry especially more about that in patients with diseases like IBD and small cell lymphoma, where the mucosa and sort of the, the actual tissue of the intestines is abnormal. Um, so if I have a patient that is um, quite clinically unstable and quite ill, I'm definitely going to also encourage, let's do endoscopy so that we can start therapy right away. If we've got a very ill patient, steroids are probably going to be a component of treatment for both of the conditions, at least in the first line. So if my preliminary histopathology comes back um, inconclusive but suggestive for small cell lymphoma, we'll start steroids, we'll um, add those tests on, wait for the next piece to come back. Um, and again, because also chlorambucil is one of those drugs that sort of can be used in the sort of first line for both of those treatments, that is something else that, say, if you're in an area of the world where PAR takes longer. So for me, when I was practicing previously, um, about four or five years ago, we actually did have to wait about 10 days to get PAR back. So in those cases, when I had an unstable patient, we would start Pred and Chlorambucil, wait for the results to come back. If we had a surprise, um, then we can sort of easily modify. If the patient's not responding to Chlorambucil, we go up to um, cyclophosphamide or lormustine on the lymphoma side of things, or add an additional immunosuppressive on the IBD side of things. So how do you how do you decide about the the, the treatment sort of protocols for for those patients? Does it depend on the severity of signs they're showing, the pathology that they're they're showing, um, or or the just the disease that they they have? Um, so for small cell lymphoma, the, the first-line therapy um, that is generally recommended to be started with is immunosuppressive doses of steroids, so about 2 milligram per kilogram per day, um, and chlorambucil. And that can be dosed one of two ways, um, either a sort of every other day, um, almost sort of metronomic protocol where we're dosing at about 4 to 5 milligrams per meter squared, or pulse dosing where we're doing 20 milligrams per meter squared every other week. Um, it is a bit clinician-dependent and patient-dependent which of those you do. If you've got a cat that's really hard to tablet, we might go sort of the pulse dosing direction. Um, but certainly for me, I, if you look at the overall dose that they're getting in a two-week period, um, they're getting a fair bit less with the pulse dosing strategy. So I tend to prefer to go on the, the every other day. Um, because small cell lymphoma, it's an indolent, slower growing lymphoma process. The cells are dividing much more slowly. Um, so it tends to respond better to um, chemotherapeutic drugs that um, like slow, slower alkylating agents like chlorambucil um, rather than sort of our class maximally tolerated dose intravenous chemotherapy. So even if we have a patient that is presenting quite ill from small cell lymphoma, we in the vast majority of cases still probably start with oral chlorambucil. If you have a patient that's not stable enough to actually get oral medications, and occasionally um, we have gotten referrals of these cats that we think are sort of at the um, end stage of that disease by the time that it has finally been diagnosed, um, those cases we might uh, say, well, we're very worried that actually the GI tract is so diseased we may not be able to absorb oral medications adequately. Let's go with IV steroids. Let's consider giving something like allosparaginase to try to induce a remission. And then maybe we actually do start with an IV protocol and then try to eventually, you know, if we respond to that, get back onto 
something oral. So um, it sort of depends really on the, the majority of them are going to be fine starting on prednisolone and then cycling up to something stronger when they fail. But there are a few cases that are sick enough to to need the bigger guns right off the bat. And I suppose there's not a huge amount of information of those uh, alternate sort of protocols really to say that that that's going to be better in the in the long run. As, as yeah, well. there's there's not a lot yet. There are some coming out looking at sort of rescue agents. So um, drugs that have been looked at include cyclophosphamide um, and lamustine, which are both other oral alkylating agents. Um, at this point, I think it's more personal clinician dependence, which of those um, you, you start with. Um, and then v- sort of if we need to do further rescue um, intravenous protocols like COP, like CHOP, or um, a drug that isn't easily available in the United Kingdom, but uh, mustergen, um, is those are sort of the additional options that we could explore, as well as, again, if we have a patient that's quite clinically ill, we're worried about their ability to sort of absorb drugs and tolerate chemotherapy, um, that's a good place to consider things like L-asparaginase as an, as an adjunct. And do you do anything with the food that they normally eat as well? Um, great. So when we're talking about treatment of inflammatory bowel disease, for me, diet is as important, if not potentially even more important, than the immunosuppressive therapy, um, because a large body of kind of the research that's coming out looking at inflammatory bowel disease is really seeing the the influence of the microbiome and chronic inflammatory states in the gut. So anything we can do to help turn that process around um, at the root of its cause hopefully will help those patients. I suspect um, there's a lot of clinical trials starting now looking at um, sort of targeted use of prebiotics and probiotics as well to help modify the microbiome. So I suspect this is something that uh, if you continue going to your continuing education every year, our recommendations are going to change. Um, for small cell lymphoma, there isn't evidence at this time that changing their diet um, and you know giving them prebiotics and probiotics is going to help. At that point, we sort of already have the neoplastic process. We're primarily focused on dealing with it, but certainly in the cases that we diagnose inflammatory bowel disease, we want to get those patients on a good hydrolyzed protein diet or novel protein diet. Um, if we have a cat that won't eat those foods, uh, that's where you might call one of our uh, veterinary nutritionist colleagues to help formulate a diet. Um, That can often become an issue, say, in cats that have concurrent chronic kidney disease and inflammatory bowel disease, finding something that will uh, hit both of those areas. But um, we, wherever possible, if we can have a patient with inflammatory bowel disease that we um, can taper off immunosuppressive drugs and maintain on diet alone, um, that's always a sort of ideal scenario if if we can get there and so is that idea if you have ibd so you're giving them immunosuppressive steroids initially and you're trying to wean that over a period of time and what dictates how that period of time how long that period of time is uh, it's very sort of response to therapy dependent. So um, we do have, um, you know, some of our listeners might be familiar with the canine enteropathy um, sort of inflammatory bowel disease index. It's something that looks at a combination of clinical signs, um, some blood work parameters like albumin and phosphorus, and then the results of endoscopic biopsies. And we basically assign a score to all of those things, add everything up, and basically the higher your numeric score is, the more severe your signs are. And that's something that's used in all of the trials for inflammatory bowel disease to help kind of assess response to therapy. So that has been looked at in cats. It is also helpful and it is something that is being used in the ongoing clinical trials. So it's something that's very easy for people to do in practice. Basically, just sort of print off the little um, survey, have the owners let you know about clinical sign improvements, fill that in with your biochemical panels and your biopsy results. Um, So you... It's similar to kind of when we're looking at things like diabetes, we can assess things from a subjective standpoint, but often there's so many variables and often these are the clients that are coming in with a notebook full of five pages of what the bowel movements have been doing for the past two weeks. So if we can get it to a more objective standard, it's a lot easier to assess and say, yep, there's definitely been an improvement here. Um, So for me, for 
cats especially looking at what our body weight is doing combined with all of those factors helps me make the decision to say, yep, I think we have been on therapy. Uh, it's been two months. We've basically significantly improved all of these parameters. We're back to normal. At that point, let's try to begin reducing the steroid dose by you know, 20% every three to four weeks. If at any point we have breakthrough signs happening during that taper, you call us, we go, go back up on therapy if we need to. Um, on the other side of the equation, we, there is actually also debate on the treatment for small cell lymphoma. Um, if and when we should consider withdrawing chlorambucil and prednisone. So we know the median survival times for these cats can be two years or more. Um, so the question is, do we stay on those drugs the entire time or do we stop after a period and wait for things to come back? There's not very much out there in the literature to help support our decision-making on that yet. Again, I think that hopefully will be coming. Um, there was a study that came out of University of Pennsylvania about a year and a half ago. Um, their protocol there is actually to stop um, steroids and chlorambucil after a year and then when when that cat relapses, reintroduce the therapy. Uh, and certainly they're publishing retrospective data from a single institution, but they did see significant improvement um, in those patients when therapy was restarted. So I think it's something to kind of revisit with your owners. We obviously know there are concerns with long-term steroid use in cats, risk of diabetes, and um, sort of all of those, uh, you know, hair coat and body changes that can often distress owners. So um, while there's not a, a clear-cut answer on this. I think it's a discussion worth having if we have a patient with small cell lymphoma that's had a complete response to treatment clinically. If we had ultrasonographic abnormalities, if we repeat the ultrasound, is that mesenteric lymphadenopathy gone? Is that um, sort of intestinal layering thickness abnormality, is that also gone? If so, do we consider withdrawing therapy and then monitoring for evidence of recurrence? I suppose I imagine just like with a, a lot of owners, they might have that as a crutch as in the, the, you know, their, their pets improved on those drugs. Why do you want to? Why do you want to stop yes, it? Yes, certainly, and I, I think also sometimes for us you worry it's like oh if we've been doing so well if we take the drugs away is everything going to fall to pieces then? But um, hopefully we'll have the evidence to give us a evidence-based medicine way to make those decisions soon. But I think for right now it's at least probably a discussion that we should be having with with all of the clients. And so you said about uh, that maybe probiotics or prebiotics being used as as well to to uh, help some of these patients. Is is that where do you think the some of the 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 future therapies lie or are they going to be, um, I, I suppose, more novel chemotherapy agents or immunosuppressive agents? Um, I think it, it's a really interesting area of research and I think we're, we're quite early in the sort of discovery process. Um, so I think we're, it'll be a little while before we get to the therapeutic side of things. Um, right now, I think certainly a lot of internists are sort of there's really no harm in adding in prebiotics, so adding fiber and adding probiotics. Um, we don't definitively know if they're going to help, but um, certainly it's unlikely to do any harm. Um, so I think that's something that I, I don't have qualms necessarily about uh, you know, recommending, especially for clients that are looking for a bit more of a kind of holistic approach, um, but we don't have kind of hard evidence to support that yet. But I think absolutely once that research is um, sort of at a, a further along point, uh, that is almost certainly going to be a component of therapy. The, the I think one of the hottest areas of research right now in internal medicine in general is the microbiome and realizing how important it is for disease states both within the gut and within the, the body in general. So um, we have some research going on at the RVC looking at the microbiome and how it changes in diabetes. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of exciting things coming on that front. Um, and I suppose uh, I was just wondering, so we were talking, um, what, why is it that cats get this uh, condition like IBD, lymphoma? Is there, do, we, do we know 
That is a a fascinating area of research right now. So actually, when we look at um, the incidence of uh, GI lymphoma in general in cats, it has increased dramatically over the last 40 years. Um, And cats as a species uh, have the highest incidence of lymphoid neoplasms when we sort of compare across the board. Uh, And we don't have a great answer for why. There's some thoughts if there may be some either infectious trigger, environmental trigger, diet trigger um, that may be involved. There is research going on looking into that. Um, but it is something we have seen a shift in the um, sort of prevalence of the different types of lymphoma in cats with uh, FELV incidence decreasing. Um, but certainly the research that's been done to date can't su- definitively support any relationship between FELV positive and FIV positive status and the development of GI lymphomas. Um, and I think also we have the additional help of these new tools like PAR and immunohistochemistry to help us get a diagnosis now, whereas, you know, maybe 15 years ago, we didn't have this as much on our radar. Even despite the new diagnostics, though, we know this, the incidence of this is going up. Um, similarly, kind of, there's uh, investigations looking in things like right now for feeling acromegaly, um, feeling hyperthyroidism. Is there a diet environmental infectious link that we're just kind of not picking up on yet? So I suspect, again, in 10 years or so, hopefully we'll know a lot more about that. But right now we're still, we, you know, we're not at a point where we can make recommendations to clients to say, change these things about um, our cat husbandry and care to reduce the the risk of developing these diseases, unfortunately. And and also just just, uh, just lastly, do we, do you, um, do, do you check for any sort of parasites or anything like that in, the, in these cats? Or? Yes, so um, sort of our standard... Uh, approach to the GI case that comes in um, as part of that initial screening um, when we're checking our CBC biochemistry or analysis. um, Any patient with GI signs unexplained weight loss, we would advise getting a fecal sample um, and then usually doing an empiric deworming as well. So a single negative fecal sample won't rule out um, sort of occult parasitic infection. We might be in a pre-patent period and not shedding organisms. So we'd have to do three fecal samples two weeks apart um, to have a sort of high enough sensitivity, you know, 97% or above to rule it out. So in the vast majority of cases, we just say, all right, let's do our um, sort of empiric deworming, even if the fecal is negative. If it's positive, then great, we can sort of chase that up. Um, As well, based on the particular cat's age and history, we might consider doing additional infectious testing, such as um, PCR for tritrichomonas, if we have patients presenting with a lot of large bowel diarrhea type signs. and then there's, again, some some debate about um, doing things like infectious uh, sort of fecal PCR panels and fecal culture, um, because, again, a lot of our patients with IBD and lymphoma have imbalances in the fecal flora, so we might find an abnormality there, but is that the primary cause of the pathology? Um, which, and, again... We'd have to usually do a number of antibiotic trials to, uh, you know, see if there's an improvement. And we know a lot of these patients will sort of have a partial improvement on antibiotics anyway. So it's sort of helping to decide how much how much of a difference does that play. If we have a very young cat, so again, cats that are, um, you know, under six or eight years of age, we don't have any weight loss. Or certainly if we have a cat that has any concurrent dermatologic conditions, um, I would definitely strongly push to do a sort of food elimination diet trial, again, with one of those novel or hydrolyzed protein diets beforehand, um, before we're proceeding with endoscopy. The tougher ones become the cats that are presenting when they've got, um, they're already, they already lost a significant amount of weight. Um, they're appetite is a bit on the edge, so the odds of us being able to successfully complete a diet trial aren't great. And we know certainly a lot of cats, when we try to introduce a new diet, they may decide to go on a hunger strike, and that's something we don't want um, to do. So in those cases where you know I do have a fair suspicion for small cell lymphoma, if we've ruled out everything else, all of our occult parasitic disease, hyperthyroidism, diabetes, kidney disease, liver disease, um, we're probably going to push for diagnostics 
uh, sort of sooner um, as compared to the three-year-old healthy cat that's not losing any weight. Let's try the diet trial first because, again, there are those um, those food-responsive enteropathies out there um, that we want to be able to rule out before we're getting to the point of endoscopy because they're going to have potentially very similar-looking findings on um, sort of endoscopic biopsy. Um, well, uh, thank, thank you very much, Sarah. Is there anything that we've, we've missed, do you think? Um, the one thing that I'll, I'll mention as well, um, there, we talked about some of the ultrasound findings with um, IBD and small cell lymphoma and the muscularis thickening that is often reported. Um, some I have seen some people sort of say, oh, if we see muscularis thickening, we're not going to get the muscularis on endoscopic biopsy. So that means we have to go to surgery. Um, very interestingly, there's a, a 2011 um, sort of radiology paper kind of looking at this and saying, yes, definitely we see this muscularis thickening in this group of patients, but actually when we go to the histopathology, we're not actually seeing muscularis thickening there. Um, The disease is in the mucosa and the submucosa. So there's not a great explanation for exactly why we're seeing that yet. There's hypothesis that it might be some sort of muscle hypertrophy and things that were just not permanent changes in the tissue when we're looking at it microscopically. Um, But I just always sort of like to, to make that point that again, if we see muscularis thickening it doesn't mean endoscopy has to be ruled out because there's disease in the muscularis it sort of goes in with that kind of whole whole diagnostic process it's all about getting the the right biopsies and it sounds like actually that'd be quite challenging to do to to uh to get good biopsies in it's something i think certainly for uh you know most of your internal medicine residency that's one of the the biggest things we're focusing on sort of you know i think just driving the scope, that's the, the easy part. Yeah. Um, and anyone can take a biopsy, but we want to be able to take biopsies that are diagnostic. Um, the other important key with that is you need to take enough biopsies. So the poorer the quality of the biopsy you're taking, um, the more you, pieces of tissue you need. So the sort of bare minimum from every site is probably going to be about six. So you'd get six from the duodenum, six from the ileum, six from the stomach. But again, if any of those samples are less than perfect, we actually need more for the pathologist to have enough. So ideally on every good quality biopsy, we want the entire mucosa and we want at least three to four intact villi and we want that tissue to be oriented in a sort of good plane so when pathologists cut sections after putting the tissue in the block um, we're getting things that are pretty perpendicularly cut if everything's gone on to the um, tissue cassettes in a very oblong fashion it's going to be hard for the pathologist to kind of orient where they are so if you're doing endoscopic biopsies make sure your biopsy technique is very good um, and make sure you're collecting enough so for us kind of bare minimum 10 good quality samples from every site is what we're striving for with our residents wow that's really good we'll wrap up there many thanks for your time today sarah and uh, and thank you for listening uh, um sarah's actually highlighted some uh, papers that she's going to forward on and so we'll, we'll put some links to uh, to those in, in pubmed that you can find at a, a, a later time um also uh, we spoke to dirk whirling for the research sort of side of the podcast and he spoke a lot about the microbiome so if you want to listen to a bit more about a conversation about the microbiome and, and the importance in in research and in the species we deal with then pop along to uh, apple Podcasts and type in the rbc uh, research podcast or rbc podcast and it should uh, come up there um so many thanks again for listening and don't forget to hit that subscribe button um on your generic fruit based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast if you could leave us a review on apple podcasts or Acast, that would be great and don't forget to tell your friends or vet friends or any other friends we'll place some show notes as i said on the rbc pages so just type in rbc clinical podcast in your search engine of choice and it should be top of the if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>